from O'Melveny and Myers, this is the Cram Down Podcast. Welcome, welcome everyone to the Cram Down. Uh, I'm Daniel Shamo, your host, a partner with O'Melveny's restructuring group. This is the Cram Down. Um, it's good to be back. Uh, with me today is my partner, Maria DeConza. Maria, how are you? Hey, Daniel. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. The sun is shining. The weather is getting better. I'm back in the office for the first time in a while. It's really great to be back. And Maria, people are talking um, because we haven't had a cram down in a while and people are talking. It's all over social media. It's all anyone's talking about right now. So we're really excited to be back. Are you ready to go? Oh, I am. I can't (laughs) wait. (laughs) I know. This This is my second appearance on the cram down, but my first time with you as host. So... (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, well, you know, the first time you were on, it got such great publicity. People were just dying for more Maria. That's all anyone would, at cocktail parties, at dinner parties, all anyone ever talk about was, what's Maria up to these days? They wouldn't know, forget Hertz, forget Boy Scouts or any big bankruptcy cases. This is the big news um, in the restructuring community. And we're going to be trying to do these more often, um, you know, going forward now that uh, the world, you know, hopefully knock on wood is coming back to normal. We'll, we'll try to get these more on the regular, try to keep them short and keep them topical. Um, today, we're going to talk about everyone's favorite subject, the bankruptcy code. Maria, do you, do you have a bankruptcy code on your nightstand? Do you keep one near, near, near the ready at all times? I do. And I read a couple chapters every night just to refresh my bankruptcy reporting. No, right. unfortunately, I don't have a bankruptcy code um, on my nightstand. I do have one in my office, both my virtual and real office. Um, and, I, and I look at it whenever I need to, to refresh on the code provisions. So I think that's great. And that's that's the sign of a responsible uh, restructuring lawyer is to always have one at the ready. I mean, if you were really on the ball, you would have one on your nightstand, but I get it. You can also get them online now. So if you keep your phone near your bed, you can you can always get a pinch, a little inside tip, right? In a pinch, you can always pull up your code on your phone. If at three in the morning you wake up and you suddenly have an urge to look up, you know, section 525 or something. Um, so today we're going to talk about changes to the bankruptcy code um, and potential changes to the bankruptcy code, because as folks may be aware, it was a little made a little bit of news. We had an election uh, a few months ago, and we're, we're we have a new president. Uh, we've had one for a while now, obviously. Um, and one of the things that was a topic during the uh, campaign during the Democratic primary were potential changes to the bankruptcy code, um, and as a result. I think it's an important topic because I think it's possible with Democrats in the White House and and in control of both houses of Congress, we may yet get some changes to the bankruptcy code. And Maria, um, maybe I'll start with this. Um, We haven't had changes to the bankruptcy code in a while. Um, Maybe is that typical for us to kind of go for as long as we have without any real meaningful amendments to the code? I think so, Daniel. Um, It's, you know, the code was revised massively back in the 70s. And since then, the the changes have been fairly modest, um, really just tweaking the provisions of the bankruptcy code. Um, I do agree with you. I think that once the administration gets past the real um, important (laughs) items of the time, that they'll look at the bankruptcy code. Um, President Biden has always been um, somebody who is interested in the bankruptcy code and has himself proposed 
uh, changes in the past. So it wouldn't surprise me if um, they continue to push forward with some of these changes that that have been kind of percolating in the air for the last couple of years. Well, I, I, I vehemently disagree that there's anything more important than amending or updating the, the bankruptcy code. I mean, that, that, that should have been priority number one. Um, but I guess there were some vaccines that needed to get rolled out. I, I understand that if people's attention were more focused on that. But um, having said all that, um, maybe let's, you know, in addition to an election, we also had a little pandemic over the last year. Um, and, I, you know, that prompted some modifications to the bankruptcy code. One of the changes that was made was to extend the period of time to assume or reject uh, non-residential real property leases. So for most of our careers, Maria, the, the, the law was under 365 D4 that a debtor had 120 days from the petition date to assume or reject an unexpired non-residential uh, lease. The, under, the emer- under the CARES Act that was passed uh, in 2020, that, was, uh, that time was extended up to 220, uh, 210 days. And then just this past December, that provision was uh, essentially extended until December 2022, meaning it was, uh, by definition, a, a temporary uh, amendment to the code that's going to sunset um, in a year and a half from now. Do you think that's a permanent change? Do you think that's going to stick at 210 days? Or do you think it's likely to go back to the 120 days? I think that it'll depend on whether there's a large scale amendment to the bankruptcy code before then, or another reason why um, Congress feels that it that it should amend this provision. Um, Congress moved forward with this amendment in response to COVID. They're not necessarily going to move forward with an amendment to this specific provision again if we're no longer in a crisis period. So I would expect that they'll let this, the provision sunset, um, that there won't be a, a, a huge push to, to amend the provision again. Um, again, unless there's some, some sort of a, a catalyst at the time that would require the extension. This provision was something that was heavily favored by the landlords at the time it was reduced. Um, and so I think that it would be difficult for, for there to be a continued um, push to keep it at the length that it is. What we're probably going to see and are already seeing um, right now is that the landlord bankruptcies are really the... Um, the issue more so than the retail bankruptcies. And so um, I, I do think that you're, you kind of have a push and pull here between the rights of the landlord that needs to know what's happening with its property and the rights of the borrower, the, the lessee, um, who wants to take more time to decide what to do with the lease. I think, I think that's right, Maria. And I think you hit the nail on the head in there where, you know, the default rule in the code is that you have until confirmation, right? For all your normal unexpired executory contracts, supply agreements, you know, uh, you know, uh, rental property for you know residential rental property. I mean, the default rule is you have until confirmation. You know, calling it what it is, right? The landlord community, um, you know, got you know uh, there is a you know this provision of the bankruptcy code was done. Um, it was it was introduced to. Uh, 
at the behest of, of the landlord community. And so that's why it's a part of the law. And so I suspect you're right that it was introduced as part of the CARES Act. Um, don't forget, you know, this was introduced at the, at the back, against the backdrop of the mothball cases, right, where you had Pier 1 and Models, where you had debtors seeking, you know, extensions of 365D3, 365D4, essentially looking to mothball their bankruptcy cases, not pay rent, not pay anything, um, because of, you know, we were at the height of the shutdown and the pandemic. And, you know, in some respects, this legislative fix was, as you said, a reaction to the pandemic, and in particular, a reaction to the courts, you know, really uh, stretching the language of the statute to, you know, in reaction to fairly extraordinary circumstances. Assuming, knock on wood, we're not back in a circumstance like that, I think it does go back to 120 unless, um, you know, there is, like you said, a more of an overhaul of the bankruptcy code, um, you know, in connection with, you know, under the Biden administration. Um, so, um, and I think that's true, by the way, of the other um, pandemic-related provisions. I mean, there were there were um, changes made to uh, access to PPP loans by debtors. I, you know, I don't think that's going to have a long-lasting impact. Yeah, Daniel. I mean, that one that one was actually um, interesting. There was this dispute in the courts on this issue. Um, debtors were applying for PPP loans, and the SBA tried to stop that and and not allow them to be eligible, um, which really was antithetical to what the bankruptcy code is supposed to do. It's supposed to be rehabilitating debtors. And the SBA um, said, no, debtors debtors are automatically ineligible for these loans. It, it seemed to me to be contrary to the bankruptcy code. It seemed, you know, contrary to what bankruptcy is all about. And um, legislation was enacted in December 2020 that um, corrected the SBA's misperception that debtors weren't eligible um, and said that de- debtors are eligible for these loans. Um, there was still some um, discretion, which does make sense. There are certain circumstances where you could understand that they wouldn't want to provide the loan, um, just like any other company outside of a bankruptcy case. But the wholesale disallowance of um, debtors from from access to this, these loans was really not appropriate. Yeah, and I think that's going to be a theme that we're going to get to in just a minute when we move on to potential changes to the code. Um, you know, under a new administration, um, I think, and and this is look, I mean, this is a broader topic, but where you have you know the push and pull between courts making law and the legislature making law, you know, the the PPP loan issue, it, it's interesting in that it's a nice little. Uh, encapsulation of that dynamic, because when um, the PPP program was first enacted, you know, courts were sort of looking for reasons to, you know, enjoin the SBA from denying PPP um, uh, uh, applications by debtors, right? They would invoke 525A, which is a provision of the code that uh, bars the government from discriminating against debtors. They would invoke 105. And I think, you know, those cases all went up on appeal and some, you know, some judges sort of said, my hands are tied. And I think Congress candidly, you know, at the end of last year said, this is a mess. <laughs> you know, the, you know, the, the, this was not done. You know, the legislation wasn't clear that it was actually sort of in the form that was the, the application form for the PPP loan that disqualified debtors. Courts were trying to come up with all sorts of workarounds to, to address that issue. And, you know, that was sort of when Congress stepped in and fixed it. Um, and I think that's a good segue because I think, you know, when we look at what, 
how the code may change under a, a future administration, I think it's important to kind of keep that in the back of your mind, because I think that's often the dynamic here. So maybe I'll just set this up and I'll, and I'll, and I got a couple of questions for you. So um, as folks will recall, one of um, President Biden's uh, primary uh, competitors was Senator Elizabeth Warren, who you know has an academic background in bankruptcy. She was a uh, bankruptcy law professor at Harvard for many years, was uh, an activist on bankruptcy issues for many, many years. And, you know, she sort of had a one of her sort of campaign slogans was that she had a plan for everything. Um, and she had she had announced um, as part in, as part of her primary campaign a fairly robust and wholesale uh, reimagining of the bankruptcy code. Um, and in particular, focusing on certain areas where I think she would say the courts and Congress have kind of been led, have kind of gone astray from her perspective. No value judgments here. Um, uh, uh, when it comes to balancing the various competing interests that are at play in a bankruptcy case. And I think I would group her proposed, and I think it's worth looking at, that even though obviously she's not the president um, and, and she ultimately didn't prevail in the primary, you know, given her, A, her stature within the Democratic Party, she's still, you know, a senior senator from Massachusetts, um, and, and particularly her um, involvement and prominence on issues of bankruptcy law and in consumer finance and, and, and Wall Street and corporate finance areas, I, I think it's worth looking at her proposed uh, amendments to the code as a preview for what we may see, should the Biden administration and a Democratic Congress and Senate uh, decide to pursue uh, a revision of the bankruptcy code? Is everything, every, is every single thing um, in Senator Warren's wish list going to get enacted? I, I mean, I wrong podcast, <laughs> but it's worth it, it's worth sort of looking at these to kind of get a sense of where this is likely to go. I think that's right, Daniel. That um, while her wish list might not get um, accepted. Some of the things that she's proposed are based on a perception of bad actors. So what do you mean by that? Expand on that a little bit, because I, I, I think I know where you're going, but maybe just talk about that a little bit more. So the, the, the proposals have things like increasing a, uh, a priority claim for failure to warn, um, failure to provide notice of termination. They provide for a lot of um, restrictions for insiders, clawback of preferences and incentive bonuses and failure, you know, inability to pay these kinds of bonuses in the court. And then there's a whole set of changes that relate to the treatment of private equity. And all of these changes, not all of them, but a large portion of these changes really seem to be aimed at insiders and private equity firms that are perceived in the, I don't want to say perceived in the media, but per, but perceived by some judges and in certain circumstances, it's true, as bad actors in these situations, as people who took money out when the company was going under and therefore deserved to be punished for it. And so that's, that's something that seems to really um, run through these, these proposed amendments. Um, and, and so I, I do think that some of those concepts may gain traction um, and therefore might be included in any potential future amendments. 
I think that's a very thoughtful way to sort of capture a lot of what's going on here. And I think one a, a similar way to think about it is it's it's a question of incentives and, and how the incentives in the code are lined up and do they align with the preferred outcomes of of Congress and and the public from a public policy perspective. And so let's sort of I think you group them nicely and maybe we'll just take them one at a time. I, I sort of counted as three three categories, if you will, there's sort of the treatment of employees and customers, right? And sort of just big picture, right? I mean, you, you mentioned that you, perfect example, right? I mean, right now there's sort of, you know, modest uh, priority um, uh, limits on, on wage claims and there's, you know, modest penalties for failure to provide warn notice. So, you know, we'll talk about that in a second. There's the treatment of insiders, boards of directors and, 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 and the like. Um, and then there's the sort of the whole question of private equity and, and how do we handle private equity owned businesses and does the bankruptcy code, um, you know, contain enough that to address those particular circumstances. But maybe let's start with employees because you mentioned sort of the treatment of employees and their claims. But is there anything else in what Senator Warren was proposed proposing that could affect um, employees for companies that are in bankruptcy? Sure. Well, there are a number of provisions, and um, they are helpful to employees. They're not they're they're not uh, necessarily designed to to hurt bad actors. These ones really, I think, look to the individual employees and are really helpful to those employees. One is increasing the priority status for unpaid wages to twenty thousand um, dollars plus severance, contributions to benefits, and damages for violations of employment laws. So the increase of the priority for wages, you know, is something that will be helpful to employees so that they don't get stuck in the bankruptcy process. Now, often we as debtor lawyers and companies try to pay those wages when you're in bankruptcy, but are often um, the cap on wages prevents us from fully compensating the employees. So something like this would be helpful for the employees. Um, but things like a priority for uh, warn, failure to warn, um, for labor and em employment violations is something that could be very disruptive to the ability to reorganize. Um, that could substantially increase the priority claim and make it difficult, if not impossible, to confirm a plan um, in, in a reorganization. Well, but why, why is that? Why, why do you think was because the, the, the size of that claim pool um, would just increase to a point where potentially, you know, those are claims that have to get paid in full to confirm a plan. And so it may just be, I mean, I assume it would be company specific, obviously, and you'd have to look at every case on its own. But it could, you know, you're just sort of looking at it from the perspective of, gee, if if all these claims have to get paid in full, there may just not be enough money for certain businesses to reorganize. That's right. And and to a certain extent, you, you would say that it is shifting value from unsecured creditors, non-employee creditors to the employees, which may be a laudable goal. But given that they do have to be paid in full, um, it, it does make it more difficult to confirm any kind of plan. Now, I think the other bucket in this, the other sort of uh, potential changes in, in the employee context relates to um, 363 sales. 
Um, and right now the law is, you know, it's fairly straightforward, right? You got a bidding procedures order, you run an auction, highest and best, you know, proposal, you know, is typically what gets selected as the winning bidder. And it's sort of a maximized value type of standard business judgment rule standard that the court will apply. And so long as you run a, a fair process and it's a, you know, it's a, you comply with the court's bidding procedures order, it becomes a fairly straightforward, um, uh, result to get to get a sale done in, in chapter 11 and as a result of that distress MA is a fairly robust practice area but maria maybe talk a little bit about the ways that could change in the event uh the, the code is amended so a couple of the proposed amendments were that the court must give substantial weight to a bid in a 363 sale that preserves jobs and maintains terms and conditions of employment um, and also that buyers must represent their intention to preserve jobs and maintain employment and gives the court jurisdiction over the buyer to ensure compliance with these, these representations. Those are tough provisions. Um, I think that they're really things that courts do, um, maybe not the pres specific preservation of jurisdiction, but courts do give weight. To, to buyers that um, are going to preserve jobs. But we had a really, really specific example of this in the Francesca's bankruptcy. Um, there were buyers that wanted to preserve stores and therefore preserve jobs, including jobs in the corporate office and in individual boutiques. There were buyers that had no intention of preserving jobs. And the costs of the company in preserving jobs was significant. So a buyer looking at this company could have taken the position, and some did, that this company was worth more as a liquidation. So we ended up having buyers, you know, running the gamut from not wanting any stores to wanting some stores to wanting to keep most of the full footprint. It would have been difficult to run a sale if, if these provisions were in place because those buyers that were looking to do something else really might not have even come to the table. What happened in Francesca's was they came to the table and they were instrumental in getting the going concern buyer to improve their bid. We had a multi-day auction where one of the things that the debtors and the committee did consider um, was preserving jobs. But that wasn't the only thing that was, that was considered. And what do you do in a situation, if this law was in place, what does substantial weight mean? If you had a bid for you know $300 million from somebody who wasn't going to keep jobs versus a bid from, for $20 million for somebody who... who would keep jobs. Where do you, what does substantial weight mean? What is that, you know, what is the impact? And I, and I do think that it could have a chilling um, effect on it, on a distressed m and sale to have these, these provisions in there. Again, there are things that the debtors and the creditors committee to a certain extent do consider, the courts certainly consider it, but whether they can consider it more weighty than than others is really, I think, a question. On the flip side, it may help um, 
directors and officers that are looking to preserve the going concern business and, and preserve employment. And so maybe it gives them cover to choose a bid that maybe is not as valuable on the, the strict dollars, but is valuable because of the maintaining of the jobs. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I think it, it's a unique um, situation where I think in retail cases in particular, you may have more alignment with a creditors committee that's composed of you know vendors and landlords and you know potentially pension you know pension obligations or unions potentially where um, there is really a strong incentive to preserve the going concern, right? And so the you know the the desire is to figure out a way to get a deal done that keeps the jobs and keeps the going concern versus a liquidation. On the other hand, I mean, Sears is a good counterexample to that, where you had the creditors committee at war and put on a case at, you know, at confirmation or at the sale hearing that, or excuse me, at confirmation that the a liquidation was a higher value for the unsecured creditors and the judge approved the sale um, to, to Eddie Lampert's new company that preserved jobs and, and job preservation was a big part of that. I mean, that was a big part of that case that was, you know, Sears employed tens of thousands of people. Um, it was a big part of the, the trial. Um, and it clearly, I think, you know, played a role in how Judge Drain thought about that decision. Um, so maybe let's move on, because I think we, we, we said 30 minutes. <laughs> we're not going to keep our promise, but we're going to do our best because we're going to quickly go touch on a couple of other uh, changes. M Maria, maybe you, you want to talk quickly about or maybe just uh, frame up uh, and I can talk about the some of the other potential changes to the um, to the code uh, relating to insiders and private equity. Yeah. So, look, the insider changes, um, including the 20 highest compensated employees of the debtor um, in the definition of insider, um, allowing a trustee to claw back as a preference retention or incentive bonuses that would, if you were trying to give them in bankruptcy, wouldn't have been allowed. I think these are really tough. I think they make a blanket assumption about the people who are running a business yeah. that isn't necessarily fair. Um, I think you probably have some good experiences, Daniel, on on what courts do even without this, these provisions to take care of, of people that, that maybe are bad actors. That the, these seem to, again, really disincentivize um, the, the the management of a company from pushing forward with initiatives that might restore the business. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think that's important to distinguish between the two. I mean, the second one that you mentioned, how, you know, retention, you know, there's re retention bonuses um, that are paid immediately before filing in the preference period could be clawed back now. I mean, this is a reaction to um, you know, a trend that we've seen where in a number of large Chapter 11 cases, uh, you know, management was paid retention bonuses immediately before the filing. Um, and, you know, it got a lot of attention in the media um, where, you know, a lot of commentators, you know, criticized the practice as sort of an attempt to circumvent 503C, which, you know, has pretty strict, you know, uh, restrictions on, on doing that sort of thing in Chapter 11. Um, and so, you know, query whether, um, had that practice not developed, whether this would even be something that people would have thought of doing. And in fact, in one case, I think in Chesapeake, um, the uh, the creditors committee actually sued management to claw back the retention bonuses as a preference. Um, and I think the tricky part of it is it's kind of hard, right? I mean, management is providing services to the debtor, right? They're providing value, and that's a defense 
to a preference claim is providing you value. And so um, I think it's, it's a hard claim to prove. And so I understand the impulse to, um, to create a, a new provision of the code or a new cause of action to try to claw those back at the same time. And I think this is similar to what you were describing with some of the uh, potential revisions to the employment provisions, you know, careful what you wish for. It creates all sorts of, you know, odd incentives, uh, whether you're, you know, you're attracting the right kind of people uh, to manage companies in Chapter 11. Do you want, you know, a company that's on the precipice of a filing? Do you want an experienced management team just resigning en masse because they're worried that they're going to get sued or they're worried that their compensation could be at risk? I mean, is that what we want? Um, and so I think for a lot of these, um, you know, it's, it's, it's important to understand them. I think oftentimes they come from the right place, so to speak, of trying to fix things that could be perceived as inequitable or unfair, but at the same time, it, it could end up creating more of a problem than, than you bargained for. I mean, I think that's true. And maybe we'll, we'll end on this because we're almost done, which is, you know, I think the headline grabbing proposal in, in, in Senator Warren's, um, uh, proposed legislation was this idea of joint and several liability between a private equity fund and a portfolio company and for the debt incurred in connection with the acquisition of the portfolio company. So, you know, typically in a private equity transaction, um, you'll, you know, the, the, the sponsor will, you know, often borrow, uh, funds to acquire the company. And so the company has, is levered with debt and the, the, the corporate separateness of the private equity sponsor and the portfolio companies is critically important from a liability management perspective. And obviously, um, this change would have massive ramifications, which we don't have anywhere near enough time to get into today. There are, however, other changes um, that would potentially be made specifically to fraudulent transfer law, which I think, Maria, is what you were getting at. Um, you know, there has been a lot of litigation around safe harbors and statutes of limitations in uh, various PE type transactions, dividend recaps, LBOs, and the like. And I think there's been some frustration um, among some constituents that particularly the safe harbor um, case law has developed in a defendant-friendly way in many jurisdictions, particularly in the Second Circuit. And so, you know, this is an attempt to address that. And I think you've heard from some lower court, uh, lower courts that have some sympathy for that perspective that their hands are tied by some circuit by some circuit court decisions that you know read the safe harbors expansively, read it to apply to a lot of different transactions. So this is an attempt to sort of address that issue. Um, what I would suggest, and maybe we'll close on this, Maria, unless you have any final thoughts, is that this is another one of those careful what you wish for type of um, scenarios. I think courts have started to think about ways to work around these provisions and have the case laws developing. Um, to uh, ensure that people are held accountable for truly bad uh, behavior. Um, you know, we're seeing the law develop in, you know, uh, in connection with, you know, uh, scrutiny of board decisions, uh, potentially uh, certain, you know, around the edges of certain safe harbor, application of some of the safe harbors. And so in a perfect world, I think we'd see that law, that case law develop a little bit more before we, um, uh, before we, you know, start making legislative changes that could have unintended consequences. And in addition, I think the, the, the last thing I would say on that is, you know, there's right now the statute of limitations for a fraudulent transfer is, you know, four years in most circumstances. You know, this is a proposal to extend it to eight, which is a tremendously long time. But even there, 
the case law is developing that if the IRS is a creditor, potentially that there is no statute of limitations. And so, and obviously any large business will often have the IRS as a creditor. So again, um, could be something that is fairly significant, but at the same time, depending on the case law develops, may not be significant at all. Um, Maria, any final thoughts? Yeah, I think what's important about all of this, as we talked about in the beginning, the bankruptcy code has not been amended every year. Every time there's a reaction to some particular political party or some particular event that happens. The bankruptcy code was amended in 84 and in 86 and in 94 and in 2005, not every single year. And so it's important that the amendments to the code, which may be due, it's been a long time, it may be time to do some amendments, are really careful and really holistic and not just directed at righting some perceived wrong, that courts are maybe more um, able to look at on a holistic basis, on an equity basis, based on the facts of the case, rather than a blanket rule that impacts um, everybody. Well said, Maria. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. Uh, Stay tuned for future episodes and uh, everyone stay safe and be well. Thanks so much, Daniel. Hope to see you soon. Likewise. Thanks, Maria. Thank you for listening to O'Melveny's The Cram Down Podcast. This podcast is a summary for general information and discussion only and may be considered an advertisement for certain purposes. It is not a full analysis of the matters presented, may not be relied upon as legal advice, and does not create an attorney-client relationship between the firm and the listener. Portions of this communication may contain attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Views expressed by guests are their own. Please direct all inquiries regarding New York's rules of professional conduct to O'Melveny & Myers, LLP. Times Square Tower, 7 Times Square, New York, New York. 10036 telephone 212 326 2000